Welcome back to Pedagogy Non Grata, where we bridge the gap between the scientific literature and teaching in the classroom. Um, I want to start off today by promoting my new book, uh, The Scientific Principles of Teaching. Um, it's available now on Amazon, and on you can find it on Facebook and on our website. The book covers um, the modern landscape of um, what is best practice according to meta-analysis in the classroom, and it also covers how to read education research. It covers what are the best countries in the world in terms of their education systems and why. Um, however, to be perfectly honest, I don't think there's really much in the book that you can't get from either the podcasts or our website, www.pedagogynongrata.com. Um, however, I wanted to have a book that allowed a different format so that people could uh, look at some of our content and material in a tangible form. And I also wanted to take some of the ideas and concepts and writings that I've, you know, strung together across the internet and put it into one cohesive narrative. I think there are some key takeaway messages that I really want people to take away from the podcast and the website. And uh, I think it's easier to get that all across when it's in one narrative. Um, that being said, I, I also want to say I was a little surprised this week. Um, one of our or actually a couple of our articles, but especially one went really viral, um, and our audience has really expanded, especially on the website. Um, our number of website visitors went up by 1,000% this week, um, which is not something I was expecting, and our number of Facebook followers doubled, uh, which is pretty cool, actually. Um, although I have to admit, I was a little surprised as to what drove that traffic. Actually, I wrote an article on the topic of how to read education research. Um, which was something that I felt was uh, valuable and I thought it was necessary in our field because I think there is a lack of misunderstanding overall on the general population of teachers on how to read education research and actually within the media itself. And I think that's a big part of why I wrote my book. Um, but uh, I never expected that to be something that would be popular. Uh, so it's kind of cool and it tickles me that that was the thing that that uh, was successful. But I, I think, you know, it goes behind in part this... Uh, what I would like my main message to be, in fact, I was on, on Facebook doing uh, posting about education, and somebody asked what, what my agenda is. Um, what was I after as a, a podcaster? Um, and I think they were worried that I was like promoting balanced literacy or whole language or some type of disreputable program. But uh, we don't, here at uh, Pedagogy Non Grata, we don't support any specific program, although we're generally speaking pro phonics and pro RTI. We don't work for RTI. We don't get any kickbacks from them. And there's no big pharma or sorry, big phonics uh, company. That was a Freudian slip uh, supporting us. Um, I, I think our goal and my goal is to promote self-efficacy amongst teachers. I want teachers to be able to identify for themselves what is evidence-based in their field and to advocate for that. Which uh, brings me to today's episode. Since um, people were so interested in um, how to read research, uh, I thought I'd uh, review my article on it and try and add any notes that I could think of offhand. I'll do the, I did a secondary article on it and I'll do that for our next episode too, which was the Intermediate Guide to Reading Research. Admittedly, I never wrote uh, an advanced guide to reading research and I don't think I will, at least not anytime soon. The reality is I don't have a graduate degree. I, I don't have a PhD. Normally, I wouldn't actually personally take the research of anyone seriously who didn't have um, a graduate degree and, or a, hopefully a PhD. Um, and here I am writing research left, right, and center on, on education and hoping people take it seriously because uh, I pour my uh, heart and soul into that research. Um, 
but I, I also hope that my citations and the, the way I structure my work uh, sort of speaks for itself so that if people were you know, dubious of some of my research that they could um, backtrack and, and test some of my hypothesis within the evidence. Um, but I, I certainly don't feel qualified to speak to um, what is um, what would be an advanced way of reading research. Uh, that being said, I think there's some major mistakes that the average person and the media makes when they read research. And I was really hoping that my, my two guides would address these issues. Um, the beginner's guide is really meant to just help the average person, and the intermediate guide gets a little bit more nerdy. But uh, I'm gonna start off with just going through the beginner's guide. So I will say that um, evidence-based instruction, it's commonly used as a label on teaching pedagogies. However, it rarely means what people think. You know, balanced literacy and structured literacy advocates always refer to themselves as evidence-based. And what they really mean is that there are studies that have been put out to support their perspective. Um, or there's uh, studies that come out that, you know, go against their, their perspective. And the thing that we need to realize is that not all types of research are equal. Not all evidence is equal. Um, there are really three main types of education research papers. The first is qualitative. Qualitative is it's kind of like scientific anecdote. Um, it tends to be observational and rationalist. Usually the researcher sits in a classroom and writes down their observations and then records it um, and publishes it. Uh, this can be a great place to start research because it gives us hints of what strategies might be interesting to explore further. And it can also help to explain why one strategy works better than another or how a strategy might be best used. But they can't be used as definitive proof of efficacy or lack thereof because ultimately it's just a very thorough antidote. Um, and I have to say that a lot of the things that are labeled evidence-based, I would call pseudoscience, are only supported by qualitative research. And uh, on, on top of that, unfortunately, a lot of the people who advocate for these strategies tried to claim that that qualitative research is, is, is just as good, if not better, which really irritates me, um, than quantitative research. And it's not to say that they both don't have their place. They do, but qualitative research can't establish efficacy because there's no objectivity to it. It's completely subjective, you know, because ultimately it's just the researcher giving their opinion and giving examples from a classroom to support that opinion. But you could, you could do the same thing for any opinion. You could always find things in a classroom that support opinion, or you could even make it up and then write it down. Uh, it doesn't mean it's true. So that brings me to our second type of research, which is quantitative. Quantitative research usually seeks to create an experiment and measure the results of the experiment using statistical analysis or data. Um, most commonly in our, our field, effect sizes. There are many different types of effect size calculations used in literature, but the most commonly one used in um, education research is uh, referred to as Cohen's D. Cohen's D is calculated by dividing the mean difference or the mean result of the intervention found and the statistical deviation, um, which is the range of results. So what we're really doing here is we're taking the, the impact and we're dividing it by the ra randomness of the research or the results to give it sort of you know, um, correct for the fact that oftentimes we get random results. You know, there's a, a famous study within the nutrition field showing that Pepsi radically increases your testosterone. Um, but obviously, if we look at the, the rest of the field, that's not true. But if you look at that one study, it appears true. So effect sizes try to take account for that randomness and um, balance it into the equation with the effects and the randomness at the same time. So generally speaking, an effect size below 0.2 usually signifies the result was statistically insignificant. 0.2 is often used as a threshold because it is the average effect size found for a placebo intervention 
or within medical research, like a sugar pill. Um, within education research, we find the average education study presents an effect size of 0 0.40, but it's actually quite a bit higher effect size than when compared to other fields of study. However, there's some common practices in education research that can inflate effect sizes. That being said, anything in the range of 0 0.30 to 0.59 should likely be described as a moderate or average result. Effect sizes between 0.7 and 0.99 should likely be considered high, meaning there is strong evidence that the intervention works. And effect sizes above one should be considered very strong, meaning there is very strong evidence that that intervention works. It's important to remember that in science, we speak in degrees of probabilities though, not absolutes. This means the higher of effect size we see in the research, the more willing we should be to believe in the efficacy of that strategy, or we should never truly be certain of anything. So just because we see an effect size of one in a research doesn't always mean it's evidence space. Uh, it could be because it was a one-off study. It could be because there was something wrong with the study design or even the statistical calculation. If the sample size is really small, it produces really large results. Um, we could just say when we see these large effect sizes, that at least for that study, we're more sure of our results. That being said, though, not all experimental studies are created equally. Some can be poorly designed. For example, last year I came across a study where in the experiment group, a teacher read a book to the student and then had the student read the book to themselves. In the control group, the student just had the student read the book to themselves. Their study showed the experiment group outperforming the control group for comprehension, and they concluded in the discussion that, that this proved the efficacy of ear reading. Of course, this is a terribly designed study for multiple reasons. Firstly, the student got to read the story twice in the experimental group, which means they had double the exposure and only once in the control group. Secondly, of course, struggling readers understood the text better if someone read it to them. However, this does not prove that they're reading via listening and that this proves ear reading as an instructional strategy. One of the worst studies I've ever read, by the way. Uh, when we look at quantitative papers, usually we want to see a rigorously designed experiment, a sufficient sample size, and ideally a randomized control group. That being said, many education studies do not use a control group at all. They simply have a pretest and a post-test for their measurements. So they, uh, let's say they teach you fractions, and then they measure how much fractions you do at the beginning, and they measure how many fractions you do at the end. But what they're supposed to do is have two groups of students. And in one group, they teach fractions one way, and the other group, they teach fractions in um, a different way, um, one being the control group and one being the experiment group. Um, you, it's really hard to compare the difference between a pretest, post-test study and a control group study. Because the pretest, post-test, oftentimes, and this is one thing that drives me nuts, actually, they'll try to show a result after they had the pretest and the post-test and claim this proves efficacy. But this does not prove efficacy, especially not if it's a moderate to low effect size. Because what you've really done is teach students and then showed they learned and then claimed this proved that your teaching method was best. Well, they should have learned. You taught them. If you have an experiment where you teach, and I've seen some really bad, I saw one where the experiment was a year long and um, there was no control group and then they claimed efficacy at the end of the study because they had an effect size of like 0.2 something. So one, the results were in the placebo range. Two, they spent a year long time teaching the students. Um, and three, they had no comparison. What would you, if you spent a year teaching your students something and they showed minimal results at the end of the year, I would think you actually had done a terrible job teaching them. Uh, I would not be like, this is proof that my teaching methods are great. Um, this is part why we use reasonable time lengths for studies and we use control groups. So we're measuring um, hopefully against, usually you do no strategy in the control group, just a random teacher continues to teach as they normally would. 
And then the experiment group has a teacher trained in a specific methodology. And you see, does the experiment group teacher perform better than the control group? Um, yeah, sorry, I'm losing my, my train of thought here. Um, one thing that should make us very leery when reading research is very small sample sizes, research bias or lack of randomization. When a study uses a small sample, this drastically affects the range of results and can end up creating distorted effect size on both ends of the spectrum. Moreover, we typically see researchers who are very invested in an idea publish studies with higher results than researchers who are testing other people's hypotheses. This is likely not intentional, but rather a result of the invested researcher doing everything they can to make the inter intervention group sure, uh, successful. While it's not necessarily wrong, we want to make sure that the results are reproducible by the average teacher. Lastly, while a study with a control group is almost always going to do better than a study without one, we ideally want an experiment group and a control group that are randomly assigned. Now, this is less important than some other points mentioned, however, it still matters. For example, we wouldn't want the control group to be our weakest students and our experiment group to be our strongest students, as that would obviously bias the results. And when we talk about um, researcher bias, um, not only do we see uh, studies where the scholar's particular interest, um, where their studies do better, we also sometimes see institutes that are interested in a very specific um, type of teaching. So I, I did a meta-analysis a little while ago on Fontes Pinal, and I shared the results of this podcast, and there was an institute that was specifically interested in um, LLI instruction, which is the Fontes Pinal instruction, and they did several studies on it. Now, on their face, those studies looked better than all other studies in the field on the topic. However, Normally, when we have more structured studies, we have smaller results. But in these studies, we had significantly larger results than all other studies in the field. In fact, the highest study aside from this institute, or the, the study with the highest results outside of this institute was, was significantly lower than the lowest study, performing study in this, from this institute. Um, which, for me, sends up red flags. And I think it should probably send up red flags for any rational person. But now that doesn't mean necessarily that the people did it uh, something malicious. In fact, the papers were by far the best done in the meta-analysis. However, I think it suggests that maybe they were more putting more emphasis on the training or the intent of how to execute that. Um, and it created these biased results that might not necessarily be reproducible by the average school and teacher. So even if we have really one well-done study, we do not typically place a high value on individual studies. This is because we largely see a range of results in the research. This is often part of science that the general public gets most wrong, not just in education, but in science in general. For example, I recently did a meta-analysis on morphology, and I found one study with an effect size of 0.29 and another with an effect size of 1.24. Obviously, both effect sizes cannot both best represent the effect of morphological instruction. One is incredibly high, and one is barely above a placebo intervention. So we need some kind of method to determine uh, the best practice for, for deciding what is the scientific consensus. This is where our third main types of research comes into play, and long-term listeners will already know what I'm talking about, and that's meta-analysis. Meta-analysis looks at all the studies in an area of research and tries to use statistical analysis to find the mean results. Ideally, meta-analysis is done by putting all the sample data and results into a single spreadsheet and calculating a new result as if all these studies were a single study. This is the best method as it allows us to wait for sample size. This way, a, stu a study with a sample size of 36 and a study size with a sample of 1,000 are weighted proportionally and not equally. However, this is only possible when researchers publish their raw results, and oftentimes they don't do this if we're being realistic. 
When this happens, meta-analysis researchers will sometimes take an average of the effect size reported, while ideally removing any outlier effect sizes. Now, I've done several peer-reviewed or non-peer-reviewed story um, analysis myself, and most of them I've had to do um, a mean effect size rather than a properly weighted effect size. Now, meta-analysis is by far the best way to determine the efficacy of a teaching interventions. However, not all meta-analysis are created equally. For example, I came across a meta-analysis on individualized instruction with an effect size of 2.35. Now, this is an extremely large effect size. However, it was based on four studies. Phonics, on the other hand, has a result of 0.6 to 0.7, depending on the meta-analysis looked at. However, some of these meta-analysis have over 1,000 studies behind them. This makes me more confident in the research behind phonics than the research behind individualized instruction. Although I do think both are evidence-based strategies, personally. Um, tangentially, one final type of research I'm going to cover is um, secondary meta-analysis. Secondary meta-analysis is something I also like to do, and it's a strategy that's been popularized by uh, John Hattie in the education field. Um, secondary meta-analysis are meta-analyses of multiple other meta-analyses. How meta is that, by the way? This is an idea that sometimes gets criticized for taking too broad of an approach as it can be used to compare the research that is hard to compare, i.e. different student populations, sample sizes, effect calculations, and types of research. However, personally, I'm a big fan of this type of research that allows people to easily digest large amounts of education research quickly to identify which teaching strategies have strong evidence in support of them and which do not. Um, and uh, I actually recently got criticized for this because I did a, a secondary meta-analysis um, last year that uh, got some track that compares the most popular teaching interventions and concepts. Um, and in it, I included things like RTI and phonics, and I also included private schools. And including private schools was weirdly the thing that got the most flack. Several people got upset about this because it's not technically a teaching strategy. However, it's a, a thing that's popular within education, and I wanted to show the average impact of it. Now, some people will be like, how can you compare phonics instruction and private schools? Because one is something a teacher does, and one is something that's an institution. Um, and yes, like as a direct comparison, if I was writing a qualitative paper, they're completely irrelevant to each other. When, but the showing both effect sizes at the same time, or even better, in my opinion, all the effect sizes of these popular research ideas in education, it allows me to contextualize the information to the, the viewer of, or the reader of the graph so that they can get a really solid understanding of what, it, what does it mean to have that impact from the statistical side. You know, the average person here is an effect size of 0.2, and it's meaningless to them because they don't know what that means. But if I put a graph up and I have 100 things on there that are education-related, and I show the average effect size of them, I get to show the average impact. And when they see that 0.2 and see it's very uh, near the bottom of the list, they realize that this is likely something that is not very impactful. I think that's valuable. I think it's especially valuable to my goal because my goal is to promote teacher self-efficacy in education, because I want teachers to be able to identify for themselves what is evidence-based. Yes, looking at secondary meta-analysis, um, you are obviously going to lose a lot of the nuance behind an issue. However, I think it's a great starting place for the average teacher. I am sure there are some people who disagree with me, but uh, I stand firm by my position. So I will go into some of the more nuances of this issue and I, my next podcast episode, um, in which I will talk about why certain effect sizes are more valid than others, how you can analyze them, interpret them a little bit more, and where um, you would look at uh, one meta-analysis versus another. 
That's it for now, folks. If you like the podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe or leave a review. It helps us out with the um, algorithms. If you really like this content and you've been a listener for a long time, maybe think about buying the book. Maybe not necessarily for yourself, because if you've been listening to the podcast forever, you probably know all the information already. However, it could be a great gift to another teacher who you're trying to get interested in the science of education. Um, That's it for all, folks, and until next time.